Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer. For years to come, try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Mischief Makers, your one-stop shop for all things mischief. Join your host, Dave Hearn, as he finds out what makes mischief, well, mischief. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mischief Makers with me, Dave Hearn. And with me, I'm very excited to have a magician, magic consultant, Britain's Got Talent finalist, the amazing Mr. Ben Hart. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you doing? How are you, Ben? Yeah, I'm pretty good, thank you. I'm all good. I'm um, very much looking forward to chatting to you. Yeah, we haven't actually spoken for a little while. We spoke like on text occasionally. But when did I see you last? Oh, I don't know. That's really testing my memory. I guess that would have been in January. January. In January, yeah. which wow. seems like a very long time ago. Although I realised that all of these lockdown kind of COVID months have just disappeared from my memory. Some kind of trauma yeah. or something. I've erased them. So I don't have anything between like March and now. So it seems quite recent. Although it was probably a long time ago. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? They sort of have merged into one and sure, just become just one never-ending of... day. Yeah, just like a long event. And then you <laughs> somehow keep sleeping and waking up during the middle of it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, for this podcast. Um, it sort of is split into about three sections. So uh, I'll have a bit of a chat to you. Then we'll uh, take some questions from uh, from Twitter, and then I'll ask you a bunch of like quick fire stuff at the end. Right. Just, just, I mean, I was going to say the end is silly nonsense, but most of it is is silly nonsense, um, cool. and that's the sort of vibe. Um, so the first section is called getting to know you, and we're going to get to know you, Ben. So the first thing I'm going to ask is tell us a bit about um, where you where you grew up and how you came to be where you are now. Okay, well, I grew up in Winchester, which is a nice sort of sleepy city, about an hour from London. So I was not too far away from London um, to be connected to the magic scene when I was growing up as a kid. And the magic scene makes it sound much more exciting than it is. But of course, there are lots of performers and people, you know, doing magic in London, especially. It's sort of one of the capitals of magic in the world. So when I got an interest in magic as a kid, which came, I don't know exactly when it happened, but... Uh, I've certainly some of my earliest memories have magic in them Um, and I got a book out of my local library and things like that but by the age of about eight as I went on my sort of family annual trip to London we would go to a little magic shop and over the years I just got more and more of an interest in that and then I started going to London every weekend when I was a kid and mixing with magicians and then that was kind of it. Outside of magic, I didn't really have any other big interests, um, so it's really been my whole life. So, what was it? Um, what was it about magic? So, you, you got you got a book from the library when you were eight. Is that sort of when it started? Um, I got that book probably even earlier than that. It's yeah, it really it really became serious when I started buying professional magicians, you know, frilly little gadgets and things. Mm. And I think the appeal for magic for me was I didn't 
you know, obviously at that age, you don't know what you want to do with your life anyway. But I definitely knew that my interests were quite wide. And magic is a really good intersection between like um, theatre kind of theatre things, but also technical things and engineering things and, and the sciences and stuff. And it kind of incorporates lots of stuff. And so throughout school, it was always seemed like a much more interesting thing to be thinking about than any of the individual subjects. And I think that's the reason why I'm still so interested in it. Did you find you were, um, just just to say uh, to the listeners, so before we started, I, I put a duvet over my head to kind of help with the <laughs> with the ambient sound. Ben said, you're going to get really hot and you're going to take that off. And we are three minutes in and I've, I've already taken it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm so playing that as some kind of magician's intuition, like a prediction that I've made. Yeah, I also, you knew... You, the duvet is really very apt for this because so much of magic is just laying still under a blanket until you're it's cute. So true. It's so true. I found I, I knew nothing about magic before we started the show, and um, yeah, I definitely found that like so much of it was like, hold on, so I just got to get into this small box and just hide yeah. here for a bit. <laughs> yeah, just stay still, don't breathe until you are needed to jump out and be magical. I mean, the secrets so, of magic are so, they're so ugly, aren't they? That's why they're secrets. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I think um, it's like one of those things where you, I don't know, like several people have asked the question, you know, is magic less impressive when you know how it's done? And I think some of it definitely is. But I think a lot of it, sure. you're just kind of like, oh, wow, you've gone to so much effort to just create yeah. this, what appears to be a very simple illusion, but it's, it's so effective. I'm not sure it's necessarily less impressive if you know how stuff is done, but it's completely different when you know how stuff is done. Like mm. it's just a completely different understanding of magic you have when you know how it's done. You know, you might think that firstly, people assume that magicians use really complicated gadgets. And when you start to know how magic is done, you know, that it's really always incredibly simple. And then it becomes quite beautiful that such a simple secret, can amaze people so much you know that disconnect between the, the secret and what the audience perceives is so interesting to me well it's kind of what you were saying about the um when you were kind of learning about magic at a, a younger age and it was holding your interest was that the part of it was the kind of um was it the actual performing of magic or the creation of magic that interested you i think at first when anyone gets into magic you're really interested in the in the secrets they're like um the satisfying disappointment when you know how something's done. Mm. Um, but then after a while and you start to think, well, okay, I've kind of, I understand the secrets now and nothing will fool me. And you lose that, that, that um, wonder thrill that you get from a good magic trick. Once that's gone, you then really start looking at the performance and then it becomes entirely a psychological study. Just like how did that performer make the audience think that thing through his use of applied psychology? Wow, yeah, so there's a kind of, um, yeah, the psychology of how you, I guess, how you trick an audience. Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, and it's it's basically it's basically just good storytelling. You know, like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but, you know, making the audience, for example, just walking out on stage and making the audience trust you. You know, if the audience don't trust you as a magician, then they're not going to they're not going to be fooled by anything. And just that one simple idea of like, how do you make people trust you? Like that's such a big subject you could study for your whole life, and it's just one of the many facets of magic that you need to think about. And so, when you um, when you said that you were kind of learning about uh, yeah the psychology and the mechanics of magic and discovering the secrets, was that tied? You were at school, and you said you didn't. You, that's the part of magic that you found, or many parts of magic that you found really interesting. So were you yeah. academic in any way? Was there anything else that kind of piqued your interest in the same way or were you just sort of fell into a, for want of a better phrase, a rabbit hole of magic really early on? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, I was, I did okay at school, you know, I was very interested in, in theatre, English, that sort of stuff. But um, I think it became pretty apparent that this magic bug had like, had such a hold on me that my other studies just sort of fall to, fell aside fall the side there you go that'll tell you how well I did it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they just sort of fell by the wayside and by the time I was doing sort of GCSEs and A-levels I had already made up in my mind that I was going to work in theatre in some way and probably kind of like the sort of illegitimate theatre of the variety arts you know magic cabaret that sort of circusy world 
And um, yeah, that's what happened. So I didn't do particularly well in school because I had absolutely no interest in it. I just wanted to go out and party and do tricks, really. Yeah, and magic's and you... a very good social catalyst as well. So, you know, for a dorky kid, um, it was a really good thing to do because it meant that I was, you know, uh, it improved my sort of social status, I imagine. Yeah, I imagine because I knew I've, I've got a few friends who have, um, are, are interested in magic or have performed magic in some way, particularly um, close up magic at parties and stuff. And I think a lot of them said that they used it as a sort of, as you said, a kind of social device because you're maybe not. Um, I don't know if this is this is fair, but maybe you're not as comfortable kind of engaging with people in quote unquote a more traditional sense and so you use magic as a as a way of kind of starting a conversation or, or being able to engage with sure. people socially i mean we, yeah we all do that it's just magic's more interesting than talking about what was on tv last night you know most mm. people you've got you've got to start a conversation somehow and the conversation it's kind of interesting to be like hang on a second we've met before in another life and i know what you're about to say <laughs> you know that kind of intro is much more interesting than uh Hey, did you watch? Have you seen what's in the news? You know, so yeah, and also like I think all of us as entertainers or working in the arts, we we all um, we will. It's probably it's revenge of the nerd, isn't it? You know, we were probably all kind of dorky kids that get into comedy and magic and stuff like that because it's it, it is a social catalyst. Yeah, I think definitely comedy is used. Um, I don't know if you can hear that. Can you hear my cat is outside the door and he's making so much noise? I can't hear it. Oh, that's good. There's just a cat. She's been like, <laughs> points to anyone who can hear this, hear the cat. Let me tweet in. Let me know. <laughs> Turn um, your volume up really loud. Yeah, you can like listen. You can hear the cat. Um, and so, okay, so you're using so you're at a young age. You're kind of uh, you. You've decided pretty early that school's not for you. Um, you've you've got a real interest in uh, in magic and the performance of magic and you're using it as a as a way to kind of uh, socially engage uh, with with people and that's something that you find really uh, really interesting do you think it's important to have a um, do you think it's important for magicians to be cynical about magic mm, i don't know actually uh, my, my thing now is all the time I'm trying to remind myself what somebody who doesn't do magic will be thinking in a situation. Mm. So I'm trying to, I'm always trying to forget knowing anything about magic. And so I suppose that is a cynicism in a way. It's just maybe not, <laughs> it's just geared towards trying to feel uh, amazement again, you know, because that, sure. that thrill of amazement that you get, that gets you into magic that diminishes over time. And once you've lost that thrill of amazement, you can't really empathise with what the audience is thinking. So, yes, I suppose you have to be you have to remain analytical as a magician because there's nothing more embarrassing than doing something that you say is magic. The audience knows how it's done. It's totally cringeworthy. So you've got to stay reflective. I think. Yeah, I think that's. Um, I think because I, I, have, uh, I think I'm quite cynical when it when it comes to magic. And you I definitely think... are. <laughs> I think you're the most. You're, I think you're probably the most probably the most cynical of the lot of the cast of magic goes wrong actually and that was really interesting for me we'll talk oh, about that reckon? later i'm sure i think so there is there is a question actually that we we can get into that in a bit um but yeah that's that's really interesting because i think i find um someone was telling uh i've forgotten his name a, a guy who's a kind of a magician and a, a skeptic passed away fairly recently james randy yeah he passed away yes. i think yesterday or something yeah, yesterday very recently and um and anyone who's interested in magic should check out james randy's stuff it was amazing stuff and there's a really wonderful documentary made about him yeah what was the documentary do you remember it's called an honest liar Ooh. and uh, it's out there it's out there on the streaming platforms and i think it was on iplayer and stuff it's out there in the world you can see it oh wow and it's is really it about kind of debunking it's about it's or... it's about his it's about his life as a lifelong magician and skeptic, and his skepticism was geared specifically towards psychic, um, you know, fraudulent psychics and fraudulent sort of science, but also mm. about his personal life and the secrets he kept in his own personal life and the conflict there is between being a an outspoken uh, skeptic and someone who's always trying to bust people on keeping secrets and keeping some himself. So it's a really interesting documentary. Oh wow! Yeah, that is a, a kind of uh, strange sort of almost hypocrisy of a of a parallel life to kind of lead. Sure. 
Um, but he, um, yeah, he was apparently there was a, a, a someone told me I haven't seen it, but there was a thing with Yuri Geller about the, him bending the spoon, and he was like, "Can you bend it?" With it, he just puts a bucket of spoons down and says, "You know, mm. can you bend this spoon?" Um, how do you feel about things like that? Because I suppose there's two things going on there. There's one that, like, as an audience, we know it's a magic trick in some way, and we are suspending our disbelief for. Or, or trusting a magician, as you say, for enough time to kind of go, okay, I'm being asked to believe that this guy can bend a spoon with his mind. But then on the other side, it is also a magic trick. And so you've got someone kind of pulling that apart. And um, I suppose what he's aiming for is for Yuri Geller to turn around and go, look, mate, it's a magic trick. Can you, you know, go away, please? I, think I wonder it's... what... Yeah, I guess I wonder what, like, the... how Yeah, how do you feel about stuff like that? About people kind of trying to debunk things, but also deconstructing magic in a way that was maybe unhelpful in terms of entertainment? Well, it's a really hard one, because where does one draw the line between something being um, being for, the, for good and then maybe being slightly evil? And so in the case of, like, a mind reader telling you that they know the name of your deceased relative, right? In the context of a show, that might be okay. It might be entertainment and everybody might be feeling a positive, it was a positive experience. But you know, if that person then claims to be a psychic and people have paid money for it and it's and they're using magic tricks to fool that person, it becomes ethically much more questionable. Mm. And you know, that is a real challenge that magicians have to try and figure out where they stand in that i mean ethically you and the, the people who've said who've spoken the most about this are penn and teller their approach mm. is just so is so honest in their in their deceit to the audience they admit up front everything's a trick and they frequently um discuss and talk about the ethical challenges of being a fraudulent psychic or one they often talk about is the perception of danger on stage you know you see an escapologist trying to escape from a flaming straitjacket well, if there's any risk at all in that thing going wrong, then that's ethically not something the performer should be doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly in, in the case of magic, like if you're going to play with people's perceptions, you have to be, uh, you have to be careful with what you're going to say and do. People, you know, people will believe things. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I suppose it keeps going back to that thing that you said right at the start about, um, it's about, telling a good story and constructing that story for an audience and also about finding ways for them to, to trust you as a, as a performer. Because I think if you, I kind of get the idea of, of, a, of an escapologist going, look, trust me, I'm really doing this thing. It's really dangerous, but I'm also telling you the story of danger as well. And I'm asking you to believe a story of danger for the sake of entertainment. But I think you're right that when it comes to, um, psychics who are, who are saying to somebody who, who might be in some kind of, uh, sort of deep emotional need to speak to a, a relative that's passed away and you're saying I can offer you that I can I can kind of offer you a, 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 a channel through which you can speak to those people I suppose that has, has a quite a, a weighs quite heavy the gravity of that is quite serious it's serious and also it's, it's an outright lie and it's a bit mm. like you know if you hire if you hire a a plumber who says they're going to plumb in your toilet and they're lying to you <laughs> and they didn't really put, they didn't really plumb it in. They just pushed it against the wall and made it look like it was plumbed in. Right? Yeah. At some point you're going to face the consequences to that. Like it's just, you, they're offering a dishonest service. It's, it's completely mad, but because you know, we're yet to prove the existence of psychic phenomena, which in my opinion, we never will. But anyway, regardless <laughs> as that's yet to be proven, um, then I suppose that they can tread that fine line of, you know, you can't prove that it's not real. Although the thing is, as magicians, we can. But anyway, I mean, we, we've then, fallen down another rabbit hole here. This is a whole, like a whole, a whole different a thing. Whole, like, kind of, a whole subsection of magic and skepticism. Because certainly as magicians, we learn to see through a lot of the rubbish that we're told by these people. Because as magicians, you, you, you see through the tricks. As I mentioned earlier, like, how do you make an audience trust you? Well, these are the things that con artists use too. So you can see yeah. through that with magical thinking. 
I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I sort of, I think I know the answer to this question, but I, I, well, I have my opinion on the answer to this question, but what, what do you think the difference is then between um, somebody, you know, you, your, your plumber psychic who is is lying to you and... and you <laughs> That's know, probably their day job. Yeah. <laughs> What's the difference between them and something that you would do? Because you're also telling a story, but you're also... I suppose in the same context, you're you're lying in a way, aren't you? You're lying to an audience. You're you're, you're making no, things still... appear and disappear and and doing and performing magic, but we're telling them what that it's that it's a, a supernatural force almost, or are you telling them that it's a trick? Well, I'm just still laughing at the plumber psychic. They knock at your door. Wait, don't tell me. Don't tell me. The sink is blocked. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that, well, I think that there's, um, it's it's very hard to describe that if you, in the work of a good magician, there's a knowing kind of twinkle in their eye. There's a knowing thing of saying, I'm going to tell you stories that might not be true, but it's not, that's okay. And it, mm. it's very hard to describe what that is. But certainly, if you watch the work of a good magician performing, you know that you know that they know that that you know that they're lying, right? And that game sure. is so fascinating to play. A, a classic example that magicians use is, you know, the trick's apparently gone wrong, and then it reveals, and then it, you know later on it turns out, oh, it hadn't gone wrong. In fact, that's very relevant for for uh, the the collaboration between mischief and magic, of course, where all the magic apparently goes wrong. But of course, in that context, the audience knows it's going to go wrong. But in a normal magic show, you often have a supposed failure which then resolves. And that's very much playing with the idea of the fact that we, that the magician knows that you know they're lying, right? And that, that game, that intellectual battle is, is actually really very exciting for both, both sides of the audience. The twinkle in the eye of, I've told you something, but you know it might not be true. You know, you can see that this box is completely empty. Now, if anybody, if a normal person tells you that, you go, yeah, it's empty. If a magician tells you that, you go, oh, is it empty? I'm not really sure. And your interest is engaged. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Even even the mention that you are uh, performing a trick, or or e even that you're a magician, actually, in a way, puts puts a magician on the back foot because you're you're immediately being distrusted by an audience, and then you have to work to kind of gain that trust to be like, no, right. come on, come with me. Exactly, it's much easier to fool an audience if they don't know you're a magician, right? <laughs> and, and so that's something that the psychics have to their advantage too. Like because they're, they're pretending that they don't know anything about magic tricks. It's also the same when I when I work with actors to put magic into conventional plays where you might have um, I don't know you know some magical effect happens within within a narrative. It's usually much easier for the actors to get a gasp from the audience than a magician because the, the audience just doesn't expect that person to be lying to them. Yeah, yeah. And did you work on Harry Potter? I didn't work on Harry Potter. No, that was done by a guy called Jamie Harrison. Oh. But the effects in the Harry Potter play are amazing. But interestingly, you have there that slight extra element of um, the fact that the audience is going to see a Harry Potter play. You know, they do expect a bit of magic. So you're already on the back foot there as well. In fact, yeah. in a magic show, that those moments when the audience first arrives in the theatre and you set their expectations are really important. The opening the opening few minutes of a magic show is really where you lay down like the rules as to how the audience will be fooled and how much they'll let themselves be fooled. How do you mean? Like what kind of show they're seeing? Like um, what level of deception are they going to need to go into? You know, like what, le what level of um, what level of self deception do they need to bring to the table? I see. So the sort of difference between, um, if I had a mag magic show, me coming out and being like, hello, my name's Dave, um, uh, I'm a magician, and uh, nothing you see here is magic, it's all science, I've put together a load of tricks, and you're going to be amazed by them, let's begin. Yeah. If yeah. Between that and me coming out and saying, I'm Gustave, a demon from exactly. the 18th century. <laughs> exactly. I would love to see you do Gustave, the magic demon from the 18th century. <laughs> Please, can you do that? I wonder what his routine would be. I think, I think it would involve... It would be know, like would be chewing, cool. chewing, burning hot coals. Yeah, yeah, and uh, a lot of handkerchiefs, I think. 
do you think? A lot of, I, yeah. I collect old magic books and I, uh, I specifically trawl through them looking for the most out-of-date magic tricks. Mm. And one of my favorite ones is cooking an omelette on a lady's head. It's <laughs> from, from a book from like 1880. And the most amazing thing is you have to secretly put a burning hot, like, jam jar of coconut oil on the lady's head before putting like a, a frying pan on top of her head. <laughs> oh, God, how do you do that? Some of these old magic tricks were totally bizarre, absolutely weird things. And you just, I don't believe any of them ever really happened. I think people would sort of must have been depraved in the past when you read some of the things magicians did. But uh, hold on, let's just not go past this. So you've got, you've got yourself some coconut oil and yeah. you, someone's just like, <laughs> What like boiling it on a stove? <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to pull up the actual thing here. I wonder if I have it saved somewhere because I don't want to do it. I don't want to do a disservice by not telling you how mad this thing really is. Yeah, and it yeah, will all... scoop and smear it on a woman's head. I don't know, but you should be a very angry audience participant, wouldn't she? <laughs> I need somebody to help me. Come on stage, just put this frying pan on your head. I'm going to cook an omelette in it. Wow. But do you think how would you do that trick now? Would you just make the frying pan? I don't know because you wouldn't. Oh. You couldn't burn someone's head. No, I just I, who knows. I mean, I, I've actually just been putting together a trick where I cook a cake in a hat, which is an old trick that Charles. In fact, Charles Dickens was a magician and did that trick at a Christmas party in 1843. And I've just been putting that trick together and definitely having to re-engineer the secret to the trick because you know these victorians did some mad stuff wow cake in a hat omelette on the head is you yeah. know was it like, it's like a sort of theme in magic <laughs> roast chicken in an ass just like loads of things <laughs> um, so you do so you do your own uh, you do your own shows and you perform but you're also a consultant as well is that right sure yeah, yeah. so tell us what that entails well, it's quite a wide-reaching job, which is why we just call it Magic Consultant, because it covers mm. a lot of different areas. It basically means being on any production, being the intersection, like the the first point of contact between all the different departments for anything related to the magic. Right. So that might mean working with writers to write in a magic trick. They might come and say, oh, we, we'd, like, we'd like a mystical thing to happen here. And it will mean working with the director if they have a difficult stage direction and they come to you and they say, oh, it says here that the, the stage needs to rotate 90 degrees and the actors need to walk on the walls. And then you go, right, OK, well, let's then think about this. Let's go to the set designer and you collaborate there. And then you go and collaborate with all the different departments and you will work towards achieving the magic effect. And then in the last moments, it might mean directing that moment of action in a play or, or on TV or whatever it is to best serve the magic trick. And in the case of TV, which is quite a lot of my work, that's working with the director to work out what are the best camera angles and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. So it's a very, and very interesting job, and it covers covers so many different areas. Um, most of my work, my work, the type of work I've done has evolved over the years. Most of the work I do now is working with magicians specifically on their acts, which is really very fascinating because we can go into quite a, quite a high level of sort of detail. Because they're doing, mm. you know, they're, they're working with things they've already done, and we're just trying to polish them up and sort of, um, sort of directing them, if you will. And yeah, so how do you find um, working? I suppose um, you're a magician yourself, working with other magicians. Is that something? Is that difficult? Do they? Do you find them more resistant to people than people who aren't magicians, for example? I think um, magic is really hard to do. Like mm. it's, you know, I can say this because I I have I, I cover kind of kind of both sides of the of the thing. I'm a performer and a consultant. Magic is really really hard, um, and all of the work is hidden to the audience. And for that reason, it, it can be quite hard for a performer to develop their act because so much time and energy goes into all the stuff the audience doesn't see. That actually, by the time you get to the stuff the audience does see, you're totally exhausted. And so it can be hard to tell magicians we need to step back and look at this from the perception of the audience and from their viewpoint. So, yes, you can get resistance there, but usually it's exhilarating working with magicians on their material because what you're trying to do is just give them a better, um, I don't know how you describe it, but like a better kind of brand appeal. 
like just trying to take sure. out the wrong just if you work as an editor to take out the bad choices basically yeah 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 i think that yeah that makes a lot of sense because i imagine working you know with actors is probably quite fun because we don't really know anything about it um but at the same time if, when you're working with somebody else who's also a specialist you can really you speak the same language you're coming up with new and really exciting things and there's a real chance to put you know hopefully two brilliant minds together to create something really genuinely original yeah you can work much faster because we're mm. not we're not bogged down by needing to learn the techniques now when i'm working with actors most of my work goes into teaching them the bare bones technique and unfortunately most of the time we don't ever get to go beyond that into working out the hows and the whys that's why magic goes wrong was such a good experience for me because we had enough time to really we did quite a lot of work on all that stuff to work out what the characters would do and and how to do the difficult, we call it the move in magic, how to do the move, but also how to make it look really good. I mm. normally don't get to go into that level of detail with actors, but that's well, you know, yeah, that's because of your, your experience at, as a company doing kind of the type of work that you've done meant that you were much more um, ready to, to work on technique than other actors would be. Well, I think as well that we're quite confident with the, the other side of it, of the comedy and of the genre, and actually it's it's hard because I, I i know working i'm not so much with yourself but i know working with penn and teller as well there was a always a kind of push and pull between are we doing a magic show that's funny or are we doing a comedy show that has some magic in it and i think sure. it was always the the kind of comedy element of it was uh something that we were really confident about we were like oh yeah we can we can make stuff funny we can come up with jokes we can improvise and that's that's great but actually if the the magic part of it isn't good enough, then then we don't really even have a very funny show. We just have a sort of mildly funny show with some mildly good tricks in in it. Right. And actually, the, we, working with the you conflict is make it better. The, the the conflict has to be that the magic is really good, so that there's more jeopardy that it might go wrong. Mm. If the magic isn't good, the audience doesn't care that it might go wrong, and so that conflict is is yeah both both sides need to be really strong and then certainly there's there's always this was the most interesting project i've ever worked on because there's a, such a push pull there between you know like when do you dial up the magic when do you dial it down when do you dial up the comedy when do you dial it down and those things are not they're not set in stone it's not really an exact science and that's mm. that was really fascinating for me well i think a thing that uh, magic often provides particularly the goes wrong genre of comedy in general is that a magician has to have a certain element of overconfidence in order to um, pursue the idea of uh, tricking an audience and telling them a different story and, and altering their perception, particularly if they're already existing from an untrustworthy or a cynical view. And mm. a magician nine times out of 10 will come out and say, I'm a magician and this is the trick I'm going to perform. Watch this. Mm. And so from a comedic point of view, our audience already knows what's supposed to happen. Um, and so sure. the temptation, I guess, with any magic trick to make it funny is just to immediately undercut it and make it go wrong. But I sure. think a thing that you were very good at keeping an eye on was going, okay, yeah, that's great. We can we can make this funny, but you know, we've gone 10 pages now and we haven't had a magic trick actually go right yet. And so yeah. what, what are the audience? They're, they're, they're just constantly not ever expecting to be amazed or wowed. They're just kind of sitting here laughing and i thought that was a really helpful thing for our process as well yeah and it's it's actually very similar in in just a, a sort of legitimate magic show too where often you can go quite and um, you can go quite far into the show before you've done a trick that's really amazing and i always say you know magic first and then and then you can sort of have a conversation about it later um but yeah i mean the whole magic goes wrong thing was really very very fascinating from a, a sort of show construction point of view because as you said all of those things about like yeah it's that with such good comedic brains in the room we could make everything really funny but sometimes you have to have moments where it's not funny because of because of what magic requires and i suppose you must have had that in other productions where you have you know you have to move the narrative forward i guess you sometimes mm -hmm. have to rein in the joke because you really need to get a plot point across i guess yeah that's exactly it you know you, you kind of go oh this is you just play this bit straight basically and you know we can get three or four laughs here by doing x y and z but actually this is a really 
key bit of narrative that if we miss it in about four scenes time that scene isn't really going to make sense and we need to kind of make sure we're keeping the audience with us um but i think this kind of neatly brings us onto some questions from the web while we're on kind of goes wrong and magic stuff um sarah asks uh which member of mischief comedy was the hardest to teach magic to and why well I would say that everybody in mischief was all equally difficult for their own <laughs> different reasons, right? Because you've all got superpowers, you know, like anyone who's watched your work can, can, will immediately see where your, where your kind of character's strengths are. And then also what, what kind of weaknesses are revealed in the onstage characters. What's interesting to me is oh, no. some of those onstage character things are like they're reflected or they are, related to your real personalities off stage in different ways right mm. and so so like it was i don't know it's re- it's really hard also the roles in magic goes wrong are so different like mm. henry lewis was so easy to teach magic to because he loves it but so challenging because his entire his thing in the show allows for lots of improvisation because yeah. he does all the di- kind of like has asked a lot of questions of the audience and so there the this the techniques for the tricks need to be really kind of um the secrets need to be really robust because he he's like going off script so much he needs to be able to come back to it immediately and the tricks still work so yeah. that was that's not necessarily a teaching thing as a construction of the secrets thing i mean you, Dave, your character's stuff is so hard to do, but I didn't. But that wasn't so much a me teaching you thing. That was just a me encouraging you to put yourself through all of that pain to learn it. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was hard because I couldn't, I couldn't easily say, well, in my experience of doing this thing, right, because it was your own journey to go on. Yeah, it's true. I think I remember actually finding. Really early on, I think, when we had some of the... Before we got some of the better Blade stuff in Manchester, I found Manchester really difficult because Mm. the tricks weren't quite what we wanted them to be and the narrative wasn't quite there. But I really felt we kind of stepped up when we got to the West End. But I know what you mean because there was a lot of stuff where I was going, oh, I I get that this is a... a, will be a good trick. But I suppose having you in the room um, from a magic point of view rather than uh, any other kind of standpoint just going yeah this is good you're going in the right direction this is building really nicely this will be a really good trick even if at the time you might not have meant it but it, it's the psychology of, kind of going, okay yeah we're getting there we're getting somewhere and actually, there's definitely times when i have to say oh this is looking great and in my head i'm like oh, oh god what are we going to do with it you know like i'll give you an example of the trick where you're you, you know you're in a box and they're shoving spikes through well mm. The first time we looked at that, I looked at it, it just looked, it wasn't even close to being a trick. It was yeah. just looked like somebody in a box wriggling out of the way of spikes. And, and, but it, but, you know, and you come out of the box, you haven't been able to see anyone. You've been in a dark space and I have to go, it's looking amazing already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, but, but that, that encouragement thing is, is obviously very important because, you know, a magic trick isn't a magic trick until it's a trick. Now, that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but you know, you ninety nine percent of the time of rehearsal of a magic trick, it's no one's being fooled. It doesn't look good. It's only the final one percent that pushes it into the realm of magic. And so yeah. I'm, I'm very used to watching stuff and having to just project it three weeks into the future. When somebody's kind of picked up the the technique and can do the moves, and, and, or when they've had an audience, when they've had an mm-hmm. audience in, and everything changes when there's an audience in. Um, I mean, you had hard tricks to learn, really hard tricks to learn. Everybody did, actually. Uh, but yours were hard because they, uh, the, they, they don't allow for any fumbling. Mm. So Shields has probably the hardest routine in the show to do from a magic point of view in his dove routine. Yeah. But if he made an error in that routine, it would be fine. It, it would look okay. He could, he could kind of breeze over it. Well, you know, when you're dealing with like you've got a, a knife and stuff and all these things, you can't make an error. So you have to you have to be precise, and your character demands that. So I'd say that you were um, probably the most challenging because of your track. It's the hardest magic one, I think. 
But probably the easiest because of my joyful persona. <laughs> well, I mean, all of the all of the roles in Magic Goes Wrong are so different that it was really very exciting for me to be helping you all, and quite challenging at times because you know I, I have to try and learn enough of the whole show to be able to teach you all. But obviously, to learn an entire show would I wouldn't mm. I don't have time to do that. So I have to just like exist in a world of shortcuts and and ex- previous experience. It was really interesting. Yeah, and you sort of helped build a lot of the tricks as well, like the actual. I know other people would sometimes build the final thing, but you yeah. have a really amazing ability in the room to sort of cobble together something out of things that you find in the room. It's it's really quite amazing, I have to say, to just be like, here's some staples and a stick. <laughs> I've made you this amazing contraption. It's really impressive. Well, it's- Thank you. It's, you know, it's really the, the way you have to work because, you know, like how else would you do it? Like you've got to put together a show in a limited rehearsal period. And in this show, sure, like we had a script and the script is written between Mischief and Penn and Teller. So obviously Penn and Teller's understanding of all of the magic means that a huge amount of the work is done. But there's a big mm. difference between what's on paper and, and what you actually have to do. You know, on paper, it says like, they climb into a box and then we wheel the box to the other side of the stage or whatever. And then you're like, okay, well, what is that box? How big is that box? You have to wheel it. Well, you know, what type of wheels were going to work and do they need brakes on and which side does the door need to open and how does it stay shut? And, you know, and all of those things for every single item. And that extends down to like, you know, if a stage direction says, um, he has a handkerchief. Well, what size is it? What's it made of? You know, it's got to do eight shows a week. Does it need to be clean? What system needs to be in place for all of that? And it, all those systems in every, you know, they really do need a lot of thought. And at times the job can feel totally thankless because <laughs> a lot of it is stuff that the audience would never in a million years have even considered that it needed weeks of work. Yeah, I think that's why we were so lucky to have you, I think, because there was so much stuff where, I I definitely would just be like I don't know man just get him a handkerchief put him in a box like just yeah. you know whatever but then I think once you see it I remember particularly in the tech rehearsal a lot of that kind of stuff coming together and and you and Penn both sort of saying this is where the magic show is built is, is yeah, oh yeah in tech tech yeah yeah and everyone finds that really hard to understand and we're like hang on we need to just slow it up here we can't just rush through this at the speed that you would a play because mm. just like if we can tick all the lights we can change it from an okay trick to a miracle and then yeah. you realize in that situation you're like ah now i've looked at that that really needs that little section of the prop should be painted black because that will make it look like that will make it less obtrusive and then you go right when can we get that painted black and then in, in a magic show it would be done if you're taking a magic show it'd be done very rapidly but because the way we make theater here in the uk they're like, well, we might get a chance to do that in a few days' time. And you, and then you have to, like, you just have to find ways to manipulate yourself around those situations. It's just a bit of a, a people management thing in tech for a magician to try and make it, just to just to bring people into a different discipline. And that's why I'm good at cobbling stuff together, because quite often the quickest way to solve the problem is to jump up on stage and literally do it. And I'm sure you would have seen me do that lots, which you wouldn't mm. necessarily expect from a different um a different discipline in theatre it would be would be quite unusual for somebody to jump on stage and be like give me a second i'm just gonna change the wheels on this thing yeah it was very useful actually and i think it meant that um because we were under a tr- tremendous amount of pressure to kind of get the show up and ready and then as an actor as well and one of the creatives on the show you're also in the back of your mind going oh shit i actually have to perform this in yeah. in three days um and so yeah you kind of want all the ammunition and all the weapons in your armory you can possibly have to kind of help you and then a few weeks in obviously it's, it starts to become second nature and you then have to worry about complacency but i think in right. those early days it's yeah it's much more you're just happy to have any kind of help you can get because you, you know you're doing something crazy in a few days so a lot of the battles that you have to fight as the cast you can fight on your own but things like the door hinging the wrong way on a prop you can't, you know, that's not something we can leave for you to figure out in previews. Mm, yeah, yeah. And that's very it was, for me, it was, a, it was a real challenge to the show because we, we have to put together an entire illusion show, which would normally take people a lifetime to make in 
rehearsal process of a play and mm. that meant that meant like suddenly i've got a sea of props all arrived due to arrive on the same day you know and i might have a week of time to look at them and tinker with them and figure out the problems and and then send them back if they need adjustments or whatever just that that should that should have been the work of years really but we just did it in a very short period and the, the amazing thing about that show is i've watched the show now and it just it's it's good <laughs> it's really good <laughs> You know, I think we we really um we really had the right chemistry, I think, of people involved in that show. Mm. And so um Bethany asks, um just to, she says what what is the first magic trick you saw that completely blew your mind? Or not necessarily it doesn't have to be first and if you can't remember it, but a magic trick that you remember as being really, really impressive. Mm. Well that's a really hard one because you know, your memories get distorted when you later realise how something is done. Um, there's a really, really lovely trick where you have a little perspex box, tiny little box, and a little marble. And the box is wrapped up in an elastic band and the marble's put on top. It's covered by a handkerchief. And you push the marble and it suddenly somehow goes inside the little perspex box. Right? It's a kid's trick. Mm. It's just a deeply baffling miracle and i remember seeing that trick in uh i was eight it was my first trip to the magic shop and it really really like it was amazing and then i bought it and realized that the secret was just so simple it was virtually no secret it was just all bluff the whole way through and i liked it even yeah. more so i think that but you know it's talking about magic is always kind of really disappointing because to um the person who asked the question, <laughs> that's it. A trick where a marble went into a box doesn't sound very interesting, does it? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the best tricks are just small, intimate little moments and, and they're situational. I'm sure the reason why that trick resonated with me so much was the situation of where I was. And, you know, the, the idea of being in this weird world, magic shop world made it even more amazing. Yeah, I think as well, like it is, I think you're right. Because I, coming coming out of, magic goes wrong and if there were people at stage door or seeing my friends or whatever and I would talk to them about the the show obviously for me in my mind the the main thing that sticks with me from that routine is doing the water tank trick and that's yeah. kind of in my mind quite a lot and sometimes some shows I'm a bit worried about it a bit nervous other shows I'm completely relaxed but then I'm also amazed that when I come out that some people are just like oh mate well done and like how did they stab you in the hand or how did you get yeah. the rat on your tongue? Yeah. Yeah. We it <laughs> I'm like, do you not see I was underwater for 15 minutes? And they're like, yeah. oh yeah, that was that was scary. But yeah, the 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 thing in the box and the uh, yeah, and the guy who does all the mind stuff. And you're like, oh, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of strange what. And other people, you know, would immediately talk about the water tank. But yeah, I think you're right. It's it's the situation that you're in and the. Whatever resonates with, with people, also with people's personalities. And, you know, that's that was another thing with putting together Magic Goes Wrong. All the conversations we had about what type of trick should go where and were we missing a type of trick and were we do we have something that would appeal to everyone? You know, not everyone likes card tricks, not everyone likes danger tricks. And, and balancing all of that out is, is very interesting. Yeah, it is, it is strange. Um, this actually isn't a question from... Um from from the web this is one that i wanted to ask earlier um who are your uh, magic idols people who you really admire within the world of magic i think the i think the ones who've stayed the most interesting for me for the longest are pen and teller which is very apt you know given that i got to sort of deliver their magic on behalf of them for this show um because their work is just still so challenging to me. Like they do stuff that I love and then other times they do stuff that I don't love. And then I, and then that makes me think about, you know, what are they saying as artists? And there have been, there's never been another magic act that's done that. There, there literally has not been a magician who com comments on the world in a way that feels really relevant all the time. Mm -hmm. And you can watch Penn and Teller's work over however many decades it is. And, you can see like how they're evolving as artists and what they're saying. I just find it absolutely amazing. And they're still making new material all the time, more than they've ever done still. And, uh, you know, beyond Penn and Teller, there are not magicians who continue to make new work in that way. And so my interest in them definitely wanes over time because you go like, 
oh yeah, I really liked what they did, but they're still doing the same thing. So it, mm. it gets boring. I think, yeah, Pemintel are, are quite amazing. There was a, a one-armed Argentinian card magician called René Lavande, who really okay. appealed to me when I was getting into magic and really uh, kind of helped me to understand that magic can be a really good storytelling form. And there was a magician called Eugene Berger, who also was a storytelling magician, um, who really influenced my my work in my own shows. But I think in terms of famous magic acts, Pemintella are still at the cutting edge. Yeah, I think I was um, the, the yeah, I had a couple of days in Vegas with them to to learn the water tank trick, and I watched their show in the evening, and they kind of chop and change their set based on all these this catalogue of tricks that they just know how to do and they've got this really great stage management team who can support them through that but I was um I found myself quite shocked because they were talking to their stage manager and one of their designers and uh Penn just said oh Dave just give us a few minutes we're just putting the finishing touches on this design for a new trick and I, I didn't say anything but at the time I was I was almost gonna be like you're doing more tricks don't don't you guys have you got like millions yeah, of tricks. They're still making all the time. They're just constantly making new material. And that is amazing. I think it's it is um, it's, it's really inspiring. Important. It's inspiring. Yeah. It it remind it certainly reminds me as somebody who you know, and I'm I'm much younger than Penn and Teller, but I sometimes fall into my act. People say, "What are you going to do tonight?" I'm like, "I'm going to do my act." And, it, and then I think, sure. oh, "Hang on a second, no, I need to I need to keep writing." I don't. I, I don't technically need to write anymore. I have enough material to to do whatever I need to do. But you have to keep saying stuff, otherwise you you know, otherwise you become irrelevant as an artist. Yeah, that's really. Uh, I imagine. Yeah, because I suppose it's there's such a weird parallel between magic and comedy actually. Because if you if you just keep doing the same comedy act, you know, same stand up routine, same sketches, same shows, then. And yet it becomes it becomes tired and dated, and you're constantly having to evolve and change and build new things. And, I and think the world that's... the world changes so much. You know, our, our understanding of things changes so much. For example, now you know, I'm doing shows at the moment where, because of social distancing and all that stuff, I'm having to completely change the material. Um, mm. I'm having to you know use less audience participation and all that sort of stuff. And we don't know how long that's here to stay, and what impact that will have on people's understanding of of the work in the future. So, you know, the world is, the world's evolving so quickly. You've got to keep, got to keep writing to stay relevant. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now we're coming towards the, uh, the end of um, the interview. And this final section is uh, a quick fire section. Uh, so uh, I'm basically just going to ask you a load of questions and just answer as fast as you can. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, what is your favourite colour? <laughs> you know, the internet just cut out then. I heard you say, what is your favourite? And then it went dead for a second. Okay, really? <laughs> what is your favourite? I did it on purpose that time. Okay, good. <laughs> Am I going to be disappointed by my favourite what? What is my favourite what? I think you are. It's quite It's quite an easy one just to start with. What's your favourite colour? Oh, I was hoping it was going to be Spice Girl. Um, <laughs> my favourite... <laughs> My favourite colour is black because we use it a lot in magic. And do you say colour or do you say card? No, colour. Yeah, colour. Yeah, black. It's not really a colour, is it? It's like nothingness. It's a shade. Um, okay. Well, what is your who or who is your favourite Spice Girl? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really remember them all. Um, I only remember them as Spice Girls. I don't know what their subsequent careers have done for them. That's true. So just like so, the whole, all of them together. Exactly. Yeah. Just my favorite Spice Girl is all of them. Uh, do you prefer texting or talking? I really prefer talking, and it really annoys me that everything is done in text and emails now. And sometimes I just want to pick up the phone and scream when there's like a an email <laughs> chain of you know twenty different emails just to say what you know <laughs> what color do you want the prop to be or whatever. Yeah. Probably black. Um, exactly. Ma- probably magic or mischief. Mischief. Good. Uh, if you were an animal, what would you be? Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I think you would be a possum. It's totally. Do you think a possum? I'd like to be a possum then. Yeah. Oh, possum. Um, if you were to describe yourself as a dessert, what would you be? 
a creme brulee. <laughs> is a Jaffa cake a cake or a biscuit? It's definitely a cake because it goes hard over time as opposed to soft over time. Clues in the title. Um, can you describe yourself in three words? I'm a magician. I'm a magician. Yeah, I am a magician. Oh, I give you, I'm a magician. Um, and uh, that in... was very. That wasn't very revealing about my true personality, but that's um, classic me. Well, no, I think it probably said more about you than you thought. I'm going to leave that with you. Uh, if you were one of the 52 playing cards, which would you be? The Jack of Hearts. Nice. I think you would be, actually. What is, uh, what's in your pockets right now? <laughs> right now, I have. Yeah, right now. In my pocket. Uh, I have a number of snap bracelets. You know the things that you slap on your wrists and they curl around your wrists? Oh, yeah. Why do you have and those? I, listen, listen, listen. Hear that? Yeah. yeah. I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them. I have ten, ten of those in my pocket. And in the other pocket, I have a uh, coiled up clock spring. Why? Why do you have these things? <laughs> because I'm trying to solve a problem. And before I picked up the phone to speak to you, I was just going around gathering up some things that might solve the problem. Things in the kind of coily, springy world. So I've got a number okay. of coily, springy things in my pocket. <laughs> that is literally every time we ask that. People are just like, I don't know, phone, lint. But that's really the, the best one we've had so far. Uh, and finally, um, if you were to be trapped on a desert island, which mischief person would you want to be trapped with? Oh, I mean, you can't ask that question as the interviewer can you then if i'd say anyone but you you'll be disappointed no okay i tell you what you you can't say me how's that okay um oh, i like all of mischief so much um i think it's just got yeah, to be henry lewis it's got to be henry yeah. lewis because we can geek out about magic he really That's loves true, the magic that's true and you could have some I'll, I'll let you have a deck of cards on the island as well but nothing else oh that sounds right. like paradise there you go. Uh, and uh, finally, do you have any uh, recommendations of books to read, things to listen to, TV shows to watch? Oh, for anybody who's interested in magic, right, but but not necessarily interested in performing it, but they just find it an interesting subject, there was a book called Hiding the Elephant by Jim Steinmeier. It was written for the public. You can get it on Amazon or whatever. It's just a sort of normal paperback book. And it's just the most fascinating study of the history of magic during mainly the kind of um late 1800s and like magicians like houdini and people like that and it's it reads like a novel like a page turner it's just an amazingly good book uh, so i cool. recommend that excellent. yeah oh, excellent well ben i'm afraid that is all we've got time for but i have found this conversation absolutely fascinating so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us Thank you very much. It was it was really great. And I feel like we've only just scratched the surface on magic, but it was really fun to chat. Yeah, I think there might have to be a follow-up. A follow-up <laughs> the, the The in-depth discussion the of sequel. magic. The sequel, yeah. yeah. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've been Dave Hearn, and this has been Ben Hart, and this has been Making Mischief. Thanks very much for listening, and good night. Or, you know, if it's the afternoon, good afternoon. This morning, good morning. Depends when you, when you listen to your podcasts. This has not been a good sign off. I'm just gonna I'm, I'm just gonna stop it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.